Welcome to our new podcast series, My Kids Conversations, presented to you by My Kids HQ. This is a new series in which we will be speaking with experts in different fields who can give us advice on life, religion, parenting, children, and community. Here with me, I have my husband and co-host, Anisul Haq, with our first guest, my sister-in-law, Dr. Afshana Haq, LMFT, PhD. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. In case you didn't know, my name is Anisul Haq, so we actually have a relationship with our guest speaker. She is my older sister, and, you know, she she's our most uh, beloved guest so far. <laughs> But um, I don't need an introduction, but I'm sure the rest of you all do. So, Dr. Hawk, or as I call you, Lina Apu, could you please introduce yourself? Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me here. It is a pleasure and an honor to work with family. Um, I'm very excited for this new endeavor. Um, so much, I think it's so, so needed, and it will bring a lot of blessings to the community. Um, and I love the first podcast, so really excited to be here with you guys as you continue, and hopefully as it continues to grow. Okay. As far as introduction, um, currently I am a marriage and family therapist. In the past, I have taught marriage and family therapy at the University of Houston Clear Lake. I've been doing this for well over a decade. Um, I've done workshops and whatnot on all types of issues. Um, I love working with the Muslim community, so. I'm glad to be here to answer some questions. For our first question, post-introduction, what do you think is the biggest stressor for Muslim children now? And what can we as parents do to ease those stressors for our children? Okay, so what are the greatest stressors of children? Um, This day and age, if you think about kids, maybe um, older children, early youth, is they have a really tough time trying to find Islamically friendly or community approved activities. You know, our kids, mashallah, very smart. They work hard in school, but they need that downtime and they don't have as many options, I would say, as other kids might, um, especially the older kids, um, just to have fun. Um, I think it would be very beneficial if the community got together and provided some outlets for them. Um, I think they have done a better job from the very limited options that we had growing up. Um, So, of course, continuing to provide them with that. And I think the more downtime, the more relaxation, the more connected that they feel, the less behavioral issues we'll see with them at home and at school. Inshallah. Okay. um, The questions that pop up in my head uh, will probably be addressed in the other questions that we have for you. So that being said, that's 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 general for kids of all ages. But when it comes to more teenage and adolescent aged kids, what are the biggest issues that you see with with that age range? And what can the new generation of parents do for them? So if you're thinking about current trends, um, off the top of my head, I'm thinking about higher rates of anxiety level, higher rates of depression. I know with COVID being a huge factor in all of this, kids have been so isolated um, and then probably drawn to social media even more so than before because 
again, there's not very much to do when you're trapped at home and you can't see people and you can't connect people, connect with people. And when you're on social media constantly and you're comparing yourself to others and you're seeing what other people have, because you know, typically people present the best versions of themselves, then you are worried. You're worried about your image. You're worried about you know a lot of self-esteem issues as well. So as far as what parents can do to protect them from that, I'm not saying social media is evil. Um, I think there can be a lot of good with it. I think a lot of good can be done with it as well. I think as with everything else, balance limits appropriate boundaries. If our children um, or if parents are able to provide guidance and helping them set limits um, and not be there, you know, more than their brains can handle, then that will certainly improve some of that. Also, helping them get out more, exercise, eat healthy, all of these things um, contribute to overall better just mental health, um, increase those natural endorphins. So, yeah, inshallah. But what about, you know, for slightly older kids, you know, when they go to school and whatnot, you know, because now they're slowly starting to go back to school, they're going to be more exposed to their friends, especially um, like we mentioned off air, like there's a difference between being a Muslim minority and growing up versus being mm-hmm. from a Muslim country. So what about those challenges that they'll face? You know, there's like the, the big three, was it like sex, drugs and alcohol? Yeah, you're talking go- about like older teens yeah because i mean even nowadays it's starting sooner it's starting earlier like yeah you you feel like you might start seeing like 10 year olds get into that stuff now so it's like no absolutely unfortunately they're saying the age of initial exposure to pornography starts as early as seven and the earlier our children start being exposed to stuff like this the harder it is to not reverse but to heal these addictions because pornography is that it what happens is when you watch porn your brain starts um it gives you that that rush right you get that dopamine yeah and those are the addiction hormones and because when you're younger and when you start that your brain is still developing so if your brain is developing with higher levels of you know the dopamine and all the other um, endorphins and hormones, then it's going to be more difficult to get out of these kinds of addictions. It's not impossible. Um, so it is. So it is important for parents to monitor their activity, especially when they're younger. Um, you know, kids demand privacy to a certain extent. That's okay. Um, but as long as they're living under your roof, <laughs> their stuff is your stuff. I you can check up on them, see what they're up to, see what they're doing. And if they break your trust, give them the opportunity to earn back their trust. Um, But there shouldn't be this black and white, I'm either going to monitor everything that you do or I'm never going to monitor anything. Um, It's, hey, you know, I'm going to check on you once a week or show me what you've been up to, show me what you're doing. Let me go through your browser history, maybe once a month, whatever. yeah, and making sure you're doing everything you can to keep them away from this. And of, and of course, if our kids are left unchecked, and again, if they don't have other options of engaging, um, of being with others, of understanding, um, or having a community or having a social outlet, these things are going to be higher risk. So, um, so yeah, that's that with pornography. In terms of sex, um, having open discussions with your children because if they're not hearing this for me, I know for a lot of people, they're like, oh, that's so you know uncomfortable. We're destroying their innocence. But honestly, 
they are in a time period where they have access to more information than any other generation has ever had. And so if they're not hearing it from you, they're hearing it from the internet or they're hearing it from their friends. And some parents might think, hey, my kid doesn't even have a phone yet. Well, chances are their friends have phones or their friends have access to internet or they have access to internet because a lot of homework is done online um, that they're gonna find out that way. So the earlier you can start building that trust with your child so that they do feel comfortable coming to you about these issues, the better it is. Okay, so what do you think is a good age to talk to your children about sex overall? Um, kind of get them introduced to it, for lack of better words? Yeah, um, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, if kids are getting into porn at seven, then we definitely want to catch them <laughs> either at that time or before. But my rule of thumb has always been if they're old enough to ask and be curious about it, then they're old enough to learn. And of course, you're not going to, if they're wondering about, for example, private parts, or if they're wondering about, you know, certain aspects of it, it doesn't mean you have to give them the entire full birds and the bees story, right? Telling them according to what's developmentally appropriate is key. But definitely starting off with terminology that's biologically accurate. Um, saying the word penis, saying the vagina. And this is why this is important because, again, as much as we want to pretend that this doesn't happen in the Muslim community, if there's any um, instances of sexual violations, um, sexual abuse, or sexual harassment, saying, I got touched in my down there, or this or that, and not using appropriate terminology cannot be convicted in court. So it is important that we speak to our children or at least help them identify what their biological parts are, what the names are, and also, first and foremost, to teach them that this is private, nobody is allowed to touch them there, and if they ever feel uncomfortable, to say no, and of course, to always inform you as, as their parent what's going on. And so, and, I, and I've seen this in um, social media and other places as well, where they say, hey, if your daughters or if your sons don't feel comfortable hugging or touching other family members, don't force them, you know, oh, hug your uncle, hug your cousin, do that. Um, I'm glad there's this new trend. So definitely um, teaching them that if they're ever uncomfortable um, hugging or touching or anything like that, then they should stand up and they should say no and we should back them up on that. I agree. Um, I remember when... Ibrahim started school around three. That's when we had taught him all the words and explained to him yeah. that nobody's allowed to touch you. But mm -hmm. it just felt so weird because he was so young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so next question. Uh, do you have any tips on dealing with intergenerational trauma? Because I feel like it shows up in parenting for sure. So do you have any tips? I know therapy is number one, <laughs> but apart from that, like what can we do at home um, while we're in therapy or while we're figuring therapy out? Sure. Um, what can we do at home to make sure that it doesn't show up too much in our uh, parenting? Um, so intergenerational trauma is a big word. And so I want to talk about just that um, for a few minutes. Um, so what happens is once you, I lost my train of thought, <laughs> you interrupted me. Um, okay, no, you're okay. mentioning something about like the Desi oh, yeah, the community. Desi community. Okay. So one example of intergenerational trauma, um, I'll start with Desi community just because we're Bangladeshi and 
this is very specific um, to Bengalis and other Desis as well, but when you had um, wars, for example, the, the war of the partition, um, having to um, migrate, immigrate between countries um, to save your life, having to start all over again. So these are things that our parents, most of our parents went through. Um, add in on top of that, immigrating to the United States into a new country where they have no community, no connection. Um, it's very scary. Now, how you handle stressful situations, how you handle difficult situations is going to depend on the types of coping skills that you've developed over your life. Now, if you have a history of war and trauma, then your coping skills um, may be better for times of war and times of trauma. So for example, if anything seems new or dangerous, um, people who have grown up in times of war, they're gonna avoid it at all costs. They're gonna think life and death, right? And so a lot of, especially my generation, growing up when we wanted to do anything that remotely looked American because it was new or it was different, it was completely forbidden, right? No, um, no research, no exploration, just it's new. No, you're not gonna do it. We need to keep you safe. And so this idea of safety, this idea of um, everything is life or death, it's good to keep you alive in order to survive, let's say. But if you really want to thrive, and I tell this to my clients all the time, thriving and surviving require two entirely different set of skills. So basic survival and just to be alive, our parents are very good at alhamdulillah, mashallah. But when it comes at thriving, you know, which is what our generation looks to more, because alhamdulillah, our parents have laid the groundwork for us to not have to work as hard for our basic needs as perhaps they did. So now we're trying to be better in our relationships. We're having, trying to have better companionship. We're trying to be better parents for our children. Um, we're trying to be better for ourselves. So when we want to thrive in our relationships and in our lives, we need to actually have an entirely different skill set from just surviving. So for survival, what do you need? You need to be tough. You need to um, not trust. You need to be scared of everything, right? But in order to thrive, it's everything is the complete opposite. You need to be vulnerable. Um, you need to be able to trust. You need to be able to trust your spouse, your partner. You need to be able to trust your kids. Um, and in order to do those things, like I said, it's an entirely different skill set. And if you have that intergenerational trauma, which most people do, um, anxiety and depression will make it difficult to develop these new skills that you need to thrive. So when you have anxiety, for example, and in terms of parenting, right, and your kids are throwing temper tantrums, they're going crazy as kids do because that's their job, it will be a lot, a lot harder to manage your children's emotions when you're having difficulty in managing your own. And so part of intergenerational trauma um, or healing that trauma and preventing it from continuing or being passed down from generation to generation is learning the skills necessary to emotionally regulate yourself. Because once we can do that, then we can appropriately handle the stressors and the difficulties and the challenges of our children. And when they see that, they'll be able to model those behaviors and then pass it down to their children, inshallah. Sadly, majority of the Muslim world is, has gone through or is still going through war. Absolutely, yeah, so unfortunately. That's, if people are still 
which they are they're still migrating here they're mm-hmm. going to be carrying that over mm-hmm. and you know a lot of times you grow up saying like oh i'm not going to raise my kids the way my parents raised me or i'm not going to be parents like them but then it just comes out right yep. <laughs> you're like yep, your blueprint I'm do- for doing parenting. exactly yeah your blueprint for parenting comes from the way your parents parented you and the i mean first and foremost you have to acknowledge that so when you recognize oh my gosh i'm doing something that i said i would never do um good good for you it's good that you're acknowledging it, it means you're self-aware because that's half the battle once you've acknowledged this then that's when you are now responsible to take active steps to figure out how to do it differently how to do it better okay <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> Um, you know, may Allah allow us to raise pious children who are emotionally regulated. I mean, well, may Allah, you know, people ask me all the time, if you can just give one tip to parents, what would it be? What's going to be our next question? Ah, yay. See, that's why, like, when we're related, we have the same brainwaves. Yes, of course, (laughs) make du'as, always. Um, We can't do anything without the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But as, in terms of parenting... If you can take care of yourself, if you can live your best life, if you know how to regulate emotionally, you know how to manage your stressors, if you can do all of that, you're modeling that for your children. You're better able to be there for them because at the end of the day, they need us. They need us emotionally. They need us physically. They need us spiritually. You know, some people will ask me too, like, I want to raise my kids Islamically. I want them to pray. I want them to read Quran. I'm like, that's great. How much of that do you do? I don't ask it that way. I'm not that rude. (laughs) But um, since it's a podcast, I'm not really talking to anybody in particular. Essentially, if they see you doing that, they will follow. They may not do it right away. They They may not even do it while you see them. But eventually, if this is what they saw growing up, just like we absorb subconsciously the things that we don't want to absorb from our parents we also absorb the good so that's the good news so if they watch you pray if they watch you make the wa if they watch you go to therapy if they watch you calm yourself down if they watch you exercise if they watch you eat healthy they will do the same thing um, and of course bring them along with it right make make these activities opportunities for connection when you pray with them i know it's so easy to point out hey you know don't do this. Make sure you sit like this. Make sure you don't talk too much. Make sure you focus. But then that's what they're going to associate it with. Prayer with all the things that I did wrong. Instead, be very excited about the fact that they prayed at all. Be like, good job. And hold their hands and give them love so that they associate prayer with the love of their parents. And then that will be very deeply ingrained and that will affect them and that will impact whether they make that a part of their lives. It's funny because everything you just said, I was like, where did I hear this? And I was like, oh, I said it in a khutbah two Fridays ago. Uh, so, maybe I listened um, to it. It's the family connection. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. No, but um, yeah, that was that was actually the last question, like general tips. And mm-hmm. we mentioned dua and stuff. And of course, like one of the duas that's always accepted is sincere dua of, of parents for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's actually a quick story. And then before I ask the last question, one of our teachers in Medina... He told us that there, there was a man who, uh, no matter how many children he had, and I think he had like two, three, four kids, but every time he would have a child, they'd always grow up to be the brightest, smartest, 
and be very successful. But the man himself, like he he didn't, you know, he wasn't much for lack of words, right? He wasn't he wasn't the brightest, he wasn't the smartest, he wasn't the most um wealth he wasn't the wealthiest right so then somebody went up to him and asked him like you know like what are you doing with your kids that they're turning out like this and uh, so our teacher told us that you know like i i know that i'm i'm not the smartest or brightest or wealthiest but anytime i go into suju into sajda like i i never go into sajda without making dua for my kids mm. so like every every time he puts his head on the floor he would be making dua for his kids so and parents ask me too, like oh make dua for my kids and i tell them like you no make you make dua for your kids like i will but you make dua for your kids that's right. that's where it counts really but um that was supposed to be our last question the one the question before <laughs> that actually i feel like uh is very important so i don't want to sure. skip over it because there there is uh it's not it's not a new dynamic but it's like kind of I guess i guess usually parents would do this by necessity not so much by choice but now you have like dual income households where mm-hmm. both parents are working because they want to not because they have to mm-hmm. so um what what advice do you have for those families that have you know both parents working but of course you know they still want to be able to be good parents and yeah. be able to give the time and, and energy to their children very interesting question i actually <clears throat> again that family connection i wrote a paper on this a long time ago as a grad student um, and this wasn't even related to Muslims, but I think this is such an important concept and it does relate to Islam. Really thinking about your goals, number one, because if you want it to be a dual career um, couple, um, and, and that's very different from just dual income couple. Dual career means this is um, a career path. This is a life's passion. This is working. Like you said, I mean, alhamdulillah, many of us aren't having to work because like we're scraping for food but we're working we're choosing careers and fields that we love that we enjoy um that is a big part of our lives and um what we need to be careful of though is not making that our entire life and that again keeping balance in mind um because when you have dual dual career, and when we did the research project, what we did was we looked at all the research that had been done in this area, and we looked to see couples who were successful, right? What qualities did they have um, in terms of being able to succeed as a couple, um, as a dual career couple? And one of them was is understanding, realizing, and accepting that you may not be the highest earning CEO of your company or the, you know, reaching for that ultimate bonus, ultimate status, um, ultimate height. Because in order to do that, especially um, in this country, well, capitalist America, um, if you're doing that, you are expected to work, you know, 24-7. I mean, I think emails is one of the worst things because that you expected to be, um, is that reachable at all times? Um, available. Available, yeah, at all times. Um, and so when that is happening... You know, ask yourself, this is what I am doing today. These are my goals. Um, What is it costing me? And if it's costing you your health, your happiness, your sleep, time with kids, time with your family, it's time to readjust those goals a little bit. So that was one thing that we learned is making sure um, like, hey, you know what? If we're both going to be working, that means we're both also going to be responsible for taking care of the children taking care of households household things you know and when you're able to do that when you're able to come up with a system that works 
and everybody is in balance, it, it, is, it is a beautiful life. It is a beautiful system. Um, nobody's resenting anybody. No one feels stuck anywhere. Everybody's able to do what they want to do to a certain extent and also having time with the family, having time with their children, having time spiritually and all the other goals that they want to meet in life. So definitely I think that is something good to start out as. Number two, actively making, I mean, so this is, again, a very different blueprint from what many of our parents grew up with. Um, I think a lot of people did have dual income or dual work or dual career, um, or some people did have dual career parents. And I mean, alhamdulillah, they were able to see what they did, see what they did well, um, and pass it down to them. But for those of us who didn't, and you had the um, either a breadwinning father and a mom who stayed home or a mom who worked part-time but still did majority of the household or even a mom who worked full-time and did majority of the household work, um, that's not what we're looking for. Um, it's too stressful. It's not good for anybody. And again, when you're stressed, when you're overworked, then you are not emotionally available to your children and then your children are not behaving and it's just a downward spiral. And so actively sitting together, creating a schedule, creating life goals and life plans that allows for um, what I was alluding to earlier, the balance in the life so that you can um, reach your career goals, but also your mental health and your family goals as well. Anissa and I actually recently started using the Cozy app to oh, yeah. figure out our schedules. Um, it was also recommended to us by therapists. So, Excellent. Yeah, so... I feel like it's been like a week, but it's been working okay <laughs> so far. It's been yeah. more like three days. But <laughs> it, no, it's, hey, it's day good counts. though. It's 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 good. It's one of those calendar sharing apps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it, it helps, especially someone like me who has ADHD. <laughs> so um, uh, no, uh, I think I think we'll end it there. And uh, thank you so much to Zakmullah Khairan for coming on um, for the first time. First, first of many times. Inshallah. Inshallah. So, um, you know, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to raise our children as righteous and pious children mm -hmm. and to bring peace to the Muslim lands to stop, hopefully stop this intergenerational trauma <laughs> and to, Inshallah. you know, allow us to be good parents and allow us to be good children to our parents if they're still alive, mm -hmm. to be able to serve them and honor them. Uh, Siddhar, do you have anything to say? No, that's it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of My Kids Conversations. To keep up with news and updates, follow us on social media at MyKidsHQ.